by and large, we know what to do as Christians. We know what to do because bumper stickers tell us what to do. We know what to do because the Christian t-shirts tell us what to do. And, and, and we know that we're supposed to keep an eternal perspective. And we know we're supposed to remember Jesus and remember that he took care of our sins. And we're, we're to remember these things. And they're true things, right? So many times what we get on the bumper sticker is actually true. What we get on the t-shirt is actually true. How are you going to cope with all the difficulties of life? The way you're going to cope with it is you're going to remember that bigger than any of these temporal things that it will indeed pass is the reality that your righteousness is in Christ and he's in heaven and nothing can take that away from you. And so we put it on a bumper sticker in a neat, nice way or a shirt or we, we hear it on a kind of a, a song or a jingle. But there's something about it that isn't lasting. It's just too trivial. It's just too drive-by. It's too pop evangelical culture. And, but we do need to remember that actually that is the, the way to deal with it. I like the book of Hebrews because it's dealing with people and helping and loving people who are going through very difficult times, persecution, dead-to-your-family kind of persecution, serious, radical kinds of stuff, so much so that some of the the believers are wondering whether or not it's really worth following Jesus because it's really, really getting to them. But I love the book of Hebrews because it doesn't give us the drive-by reminder. Remember, eternal perspective, Jesus is coming back, it's all going to be okay someday. It gives us that, but it gives us that with lots of depth under the surface. And I like it as a pastor, and I like it as a Christian, that we can take time and invest time at the deep down below the surface realities of, you know what, Jesus is coming back, and it is all going to get fixed, and that is what gets you through the difficult time. That Jesus did perfectly atone for sin, that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, that he does always live to intercede for us. And so, you know what? The difficulty in the here and now, as difficult as it might be, doesn't compare. I like it that we're taking time to invest at the the, the depth of those issues. Because it's not a matter of if you go through the hard times. It's when you're going through the hard time you're going through now or in the future or in the past. It's what gets you through. That's what gets you through. It gives you perspective on things. Okay, so that's what we're trying to do in the book of Hebrews. And in Hebrews 9, it's one of those deep kind of perspective things. In fact, it even requires that you learn something more about the Old Testament, which most of us don't know that much about. And you say, is it worth it really learning all this stuff about the tabernacle and about priests and day of atonement? Just tell me about Jesus. Translation, just give me a bumper sticker. But you don't want a bumper sticker when you're in that hospital room. You don't want that bumper sticker when everything seems to be falling apart. You don't want that bumper sticker when your family is writing you off. You want the deep stuff, the stuff that's lasting and stable that will get you through. And all you need then is maybe a little reminder. But there's substance underneath, okay? 
Hebrews is giving us substance underneath so it's worth learning about things that are perhaps new to us. In Hebrews 9, what we have is, you guessed it, another chapter about how Jesus is sufficient. Wow. (laughs) Another chapter where Jesus is better than any and all other religious systems, even those that used to be legitimate in the Old Testament. Better, 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 better. That's what Hebrews is giving us, given us as a theme. Jesus is better. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is trustworthy. And in Hebrews 9, there's a comparison between the Old Testament tabernacle and the heavenly tabernacle. Okay, which one do you think is better? The one that's better is the heavenly one. It's obvious that it's not the earthly Old Testament tabernacle, which is a means to gaining access to God. It's the heavenly tabernacle where Jesus goes on our behalf. And that's really what Hebrews 9 is about. Okay? To simplify an outline, the first 10 verses talk about shadows. Shadows. The remaining verses, verse 11 to verse 28, I think it is, the very end, substance. Substance. Fulfillment. Everything, Christ. And so it's an easy way to see things. Shadows with priests, with sacrifices, with tabernacle on this earth. But that's anticipating substance where there is a priest. There is a heavenly tabernacle. And there is a perfect, final, complete, sufficient day of atonement. That's the simple breakdown. And before we jump into it any further, I guess I I would just like to pose the rhetorical question or the question for you to answer yourself. What is tabernacle? When you hear the word tabernacle, what do you think? And I would imagine in a room like this, there's a lot of different kinds of answers. Some of you have got it wired. Some of you think, tabber what? Okay, I remember I first heard the word tabernacle and I thought, tabra who? You know, uh, let me give you a good, good guess. It sounds like a card game, tabernacle. It sounds like pinochle or something. And you laugh, but we've all been there. Unless you were born into a Christian home and that's all you've ever known is tabernacle. It's not me. Just don't feel bad if that's not you. Then you mature a little bit and you learn that tabernacle is a place in Israel. I like to go there sometime when I go on a tour to the Holy Land. Well, that's not true either. It's not a place. What what is tabernacle? For me, personally, the first time I ever really got interested was I was reading the Bible for the first time seriously as a college student, and I heard these words, or I read these words. And the speaking about Jesus in John one, and the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us. Okay, and in the margin it said something along these lines: dwelt, coming from, or literally, or something like that, tabernacle. I thought, what? Old Testament tabernacle. And here I am as a brand new Christian. I love Jesus. You know what? I want to learn about tabernacle. Now, if the Bible teaches that the word Jesus became flesh, he became one of us, and he tabernacled among us. What in the world is this about? And now I have an interest in the Old Testament because I love Jesus. And if he's the fulfillment of that, I want to know about that. He he dwelt among us. The tabernacle in the Old Testament is where God dwells with his people. Literally, it's the word tent. Okay, when God gave the law to Moses 
and he gives Moses the law. He's instructed to build a certain kind of tent, a certain kind of tabernacle, and it will be the place uniquely on the earth where God will uniquely dwell with his people. That's the tabernacle. That's the tent, okay, in the Old Testament. And I'm interested in learning more and more if Jesus is the one who tabernacles among us. Oh, now in Hebrews, I'm interested in even learning more about this. And now I'm more interested in learning the Old Testament than ever before. Not because I want to go backward and live in that world. Oh, no. But because it helps me and it points me to Christ. That Jesus didn't act as a high priest and go into the earthly tent on our behalf. Only to have to do it again and again and again and again. He entered into the heavenly tabernacle, the very dwelling of God on our behalf, and He made atonement for sins once and for all. Ah, I like the sound of that. Well, let's close in prayer. That was a pretty good sermon. We're going to learn about tabernacle today, and, and I'm just trying to, I'm, I'm trying to warm you up, and I'm trying to get you motivated, if need be, to do some learning, because the payoff is worth it if you're a Christian, because you see the greatness of Christ. To be honest with you, I'm more interested in reading the Old Testament than I've ever been, honestly, in my life, because we're working through Hebrews. I want to learn more about the shadows, not to live in the shadows but because of what they were expecting, okay? And so here we go. We'll begin working our way through this where we learn about priests in the tabernacle, we learn about sacrifice in the tabernacle, and we learn about all these shadows, not to stay there, but to move beyond there. So let's go ahead and begin looking at the shadows in verse 1. Excuse me. Now, even the first covenant, that's referring to the old covenant. We learned about that in chapter 8. That's the Mosaic covenant, it might be called. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. And he's talking about the tabernacle, the earthly place of holiness, later to be contrasted in, in verse 24 with the heavenly place of holiness, which would be the heavenly tabernacle then verse 2 for a tent was prepared the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence it is called the holy place behind the curtain behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place so please notice the distinction in verse 2 holy place the most holy place so there's a difference then verse 4 having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant okay so we've got holy place most holy place which one's most important it's obvious it's the most holy place the two divisions within the temple excuse me the tabernacle that's a that's a providential slip of tongue Because, by the way, why isn't the author of Hebrews talking about the temple? The tabernacle, is, by this point in time, in the first century, has gone away. Now we're doing temple. And if you thought of that question already, you get, like, extra serving of dessert at lunch. But it actually is an important question. Here we are, first century... The temple is still standing. The Jews go to the temple for sacrifice where the priest is. 
And the author of Hebrews is a little behind the times because he's talking about the tabernacle, and the tabernacle was phased out with the coming of the temple. Why does he do this? Well, he's actually not behind the times because essentially what happened in the tabernacle is the same thing that happens in the temple. You have priest, you have atonement, you have day of atonement once a year, and you also have it, both of them being inadequate because you have to keep doing it again. Here's why he does it. He's comparing the Mosaic system, the Old Covenant, with the New Covenant. And when the Old Covenant was given to Moses, it wasn't the era of the temple. It was the era of the tabernacle. And so he's drawing that kind of distinction. But everything, essentially, that would apply to the tabernacle would apply to the temple. Did you get all that? I told you we were going to have to get motivated to do a little learning. But it's all designed for us to see how Christ is even better than we imagined, okay? He's giving us more details in verse 5. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. That's a great quote for a preacher, okay? Hebrews was probably originally a sermon, and I'm just going to echo those words. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. I'm racing the clock. Okay. We, we could get into the details of the tabernacle, but he, he's not about the details. He just wanted to at least describe it, describe the essence of it, just enough to make sure we know what he's talking about, and he's not going to dwell on it. He's going to keep moving on as a matter of fact, and I'm going to do the same. In verse 6 we read, These preparations having thus been made, the priests go, important word here, regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. Verse 7, but into the second, now we have the, the, the most holy place, the second only, there's another important word, we have regularly in verse 6 and verse 7, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year. And when does he do that? What's that holiday that pops up on your calendar that you don't even know what it is, and you just know that it's Jewish? It's Yom Kippur. It is Day of Atonement, once a year. In fact, it's so important, some Jews would just call it the day. Okay? The Yom. There's that one day when the priest, the high priest goes in to make atonement on the Day of Atonement. So there's a distinction between the ordinary, regular, ongoing, daily sacrifices, but there's this unique day, the Day of Atonement. And then we keep reading, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. A couple of important things there. Priests carry blood. You have to have blood. You have to have shedding of blood because apart from that, as we'll read, there is no forgiveness. God calls for life to be given, which is symbolic of the, in the blood, okay? So the priest cannot dare go there without some kind of atoning sacrifice. He goes with blood, carrying the blood of animals, okay? But not only that, it's interesting that our text says, which he offers for himself. So he's a sinner, unlike the high priest we've been learning about in Hebrews, who is Jesus, and for the unintentional sins of the people. Kind of fascinating, Yom Kippur, the big day, the grand day, the day we've been waiting for, the once a year day where the high priest not only goes in, but he goes into the significant place, the place of God's dwelling, uniquely dwelling for the unintentional sins of the people. 
probably because their sacrifices ongoingly, daily, for specified known sins. But we are sinners at our very core who sin. We sin in ways we know. We sin in ways we don't know. We're going to have the grand day being the day for even the unintentional sins, the ones that we are not aware of. It says something about the human heart and says something about our predicament. Having this be the very, very important day. But what's interesting, when you read that, you might think, well, that's, that's nice. That's good that they did that. And they did what God prescribed. And this is important. But in the context of the book of Hebrews, when you, when you read what we just read in those opening seven verses or so, it's already saying something about inadequacy. He's got to bring sacrifice for his own sins. And this is something that has to be repeated every year. There's something about this that is inherently defective. One scholar put it this way. But the fact that fresh blood had to be shed and a new entry into the most holy place made year by year shows that this sacrificial blood was ultimately not effective. Thus, for Hebrews, worship by means of this sanctuary was shown to be seriously inadequate. The greatest festival of the Jewish year? I like this. Paradoxically shows most clearly the limitations of the Old Covenant and its high priesthood. Here we have the great, great, great Yom Kippur. Even by what it is, showing something of its inadequacy. Which is interesting if you mentally think to last week in chapter 8, if you weren't here just to remind you of it, in chapter 8 we have a new covenant promised. Well, even in the Old Testament, the new covenant is promised. Well, that right there is implying some kind of inadequacy. Because if in the old covenant system of the law of Moses, you also have talk of a coming new covenant, that means that the old one's going to be replaced. Yeah, you can bet your boots. There's inadequacy in this system. There's got to be something greater, something more, where it doesn't have to be repeated, where there can be a perfect, lasting relationship brought between sinners and God. The old covenant system is limited its provisional access to God. It's not like all the people can go in, yeah, we're always with God. I have intimacy with God. It's my turn. Only the high priest, only once a year, on behalf of the people. See, that's different than New Covenant we were learning about last week, where there is intimacy with God, personal, relational knowledge with God, not just representative by a priest, but for all of the believers. He's preparing us to see that Jesus is the one who makes that possible. Then let's look at verse 8. By this the Holy Spirit indicates, probably using that as another way of saying this is what the Old Testament teaches, The Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. Okay, As long as that system is intact, you've got limitation. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered. How about this one? That cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. 
probably using conscience there just to describe internal. We can do the outside, taking care of these external sinful things. But you know what? It doesn't work. It's not working in the sense we need it to work in. It's not in the ultimate sense, internal sense. It cannot bring perfection of the worshiper in its truest, most needed sense. Verse 10 says, but deal only with foods. Leviticus 11, dietary laws and drink. Leviticus 10, number 6, and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Now, we could say that some is better than none. Okay? When you look at the tabernacle and the system and the old covenant mosaic system, you could say, you know what? Some is better than none. God's grace gave the system where there, there, there could be access, even though it was only by the high priest, even though it was only once a year, at, le- at least there could be this kind of cleansing. At least we had that. God gave us that. Some is better than none. But it's a shadow. It's anticipatory. It's waiting for something greater. Even the Old Testament talks about a new covenant where we wouldn't have shadow anymore. We would have substance. And he's getting us ready to see that. This is important, especially if you happen to be of of the mindset where you kind of like the old system better. Familiarity is kind of nice. And he's making the argument and the point, don't you dare go back and go for shadows. You go for the substance to which the shadows were pointing. Okay, that's where, where things are going. Until the time of Reformation. The argument here is the time of Reformation has come and there is going to be direct, now free access to God. All the time, personally, in Christ. So let's now move on to the substance. Let's move on to the substance who is Christ. This is what we've been waiting for. This is a high point. I don't want to say it's the high point, but this is a high point in the book of Hebrews. And and it really took all of that to get us to this because now we see in verse 11, make sure you don't miss this. He says, but when Christ appeared, 22 font emboldened, jumping off the page. If you only underline once a year, like on the day of Yom Kippur, you should do it now. Okay. But, that wonderful redemptive word, but, but when Christ is how it's supposed to come off the page. Absolute distinction, difference. This is how it was in the world of shadows and types. But when Christ appeared, totally different, radical change. He's occupying centrality. And remember, Christ in the New Testament is the Old Testament word translated Christ in the New Testament, but it's using, it's translating the Old Testament word Messiah, Mashiach, very, very Jewish. But when Messiah appeared, when the promised one appeared, when the one we were waiting for appeared, see, now everything changes. It's totally different. He even uses the word appeared in the sense of, of, of destination, in the sense of reaching somewhere. Remember earlier in chapter 1, verse 2, getting us ready for where Hebrews, Hebrews was going to go. God has spoken in many ways, in diverse ways, and that sort of thing. But in these last days, in these culminating days, in these appearing days, you might say, 
He's spoken to us through his son. You know? I don't know how they transcribe that on the transcription, but it's good. You know, there's that exclamation point. High point. This is everything. When Christ appeared, then notice, grammatically, he gives us all kinds of, of rich, good, elaborative points. But really, the connector is in verse 11. But when Christ appeared, it would be dot, 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 down to verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy places. We'll get to the other stuff in a moment, the, 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 the sanctified filler that's so good and rich. But when Christ appeared, what did he do? He entered once and for all into the holy place. He's that kind of priest. That's what he came here to do. When he appeared, that's what he did. It doesn't get any richer and grander than that. He gained true entry into the sanctuary. And as we're going to see, he gained true entry, ultimate lasting entry into the heavenly sanctuary. Who's better? Old Testament priests, once a year, they have to keep doing it? Or Christ? It's Christ. Obviously, it's Christ. And then it says, let's keep reading in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, I love it that he doesn't elaborate because it's all-inclusive. The good things that have come as our high priest in the new covenant, the good things that have come to us, the list could go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. All the things that are ours in him, with him as our high priest. Comprehensive, redemptive kinds of blessings. Then let's keep reading. Then through the greater, it's like our better word, the greater and more perfect tent or tabernacle not made with hands, that is... Not of this creation. He's comparing it to the Old Testament tabernacle, the old covenant system. Then it is, verse 12, he entered, I got out my font enhancer here, once for all. Just shouting at us. Once for all, how about translation, as far as implication, unprecedented. If it's once for all, we've been learning that's unprecedented. That's not how it worked with the Old Testament priest, even the high priest. This is totally different. Once for all, unprecedented. Once for all, definitive, right? Once for all, unrepeatable. Which is a complete difference between Old Covenant and New Covenant. Oh, yes, there are a lot of similarities because we have types and shadows substance but totally different in that never to be repeated never been done like this before new isn't always better but when it comes to the covenants it is better (laughs) most certainly so then it says into the holy places Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. That's shorthand for his sacrificial work, his sacrificial death, by means of his own blood. How about that? The priest going carrying animal blood. He goes in by means of his own blood. 
and then theological salvation implication, thus securing an eternal redemption. That's Day of Atonement talk, and it is grand. Securing eternal redemption. I mean, that, I just do this perpetually in Hebrews 9 with this stuff because this is so good. It just warms my hands and my heart. Brings his own blood, securing, we all understand that, eternal redemption. There's no way. How could he describe it to be better? He just can't. There's just never a better way to say it that way. He purchases us out of the slave market of sin. That's our redemption word. He frees us from sin and its bondage. Isn't it good, too, when you learn about our Savior Jesus in that verse? By means of his own blood. This is something that that is not being done to him. Like the animals are slaughtered and their blood is taken by the priest. No, Jesus is the priest and he himself is giving himself. It's reminiscent of what he would say when he was on earth, when he would say that he would give his life as a ransom for many. Mark chapter 10. Or even in Hebrews 9.26, we're going to hear these words. By the sacrifice, I love it, of himself. Different. He's the voluntary sacrifice, giving up himself. I don't know. If you don't, if you don't like this stuff in verse 12, you need to find a new church. <laughs> Because we're going to fight like cats. Because this is really some and substance of, of what Christianity is about. He's our high priest, securing an eternal redemption by his own blood. He's sufficient once for all. And now what happens, I hate to leave this behind, but we probably should. Now what happens is he he uses a little bit different form of argument. He's going to go back to the old covenant system and he's going to say, all right, I'll grant you there's some good in it. It's from God, you know. (laughs) There's good in it. there's There's a temporary, limited cleansing that takes place. Can't deny that. And he's going to take that and say, if that's the case with that old covenant system, what should we say about Jesus? Better. Better. Let's go ahead and see how he, how he does that in verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify or purify or bring cleansing for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ It's that kind of argument. Okay, there's something good to be had here. We know it's not lasting. We know it's not ultimate. We know it can't actually ultimately atone for sins. By the way, you could write it in the margin. Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So there is a temporary limited sanctifying effect that God calls for. But if that's the case, so let's acknowledge the good at this point in time. How much more if we're talking about none other than the eternal Son of God who is the victorious one who gave himself up more 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 and more is how much more according to verse 14 will the blood of christ that's that's isaiah 53-esque and quite frankly very offensive to the jewish ears think about that one 
How much more will the blood of Messiah? That is super, uber, duper offensive. The blood of Messiah? How dare you talk about the blood of Messiah? If you want to offend your Jewish friends, you talk about Christ, the Savior, Messiah, who died. I, that's not how I start conversations with Jewish people that I'm trying to build a relationship with so I can evangelize them. I would talk about Jesus. But as soon as you say Christ, their Messiah, crucified, it is scandalous and offensive. I'm going there because that's where the Bible takes us. But not a good icebreaker. (laughs) But the grand reality of it is, it is Christ's blood who died. It is Messiah. It is the Isaiah 53 crushed for our iniquities, new covenant realities. And he's going to go there, by the way. If you have new covenant, you have to have, if you're going to have a covenant, you have to have a shedding of blood. Whose blood is going to be shed to have a new covenant? It's going to be Messiah's. And he's arguing for this being great and wonderful. And it is. Who through, verse 14, the eternal spirit offered himself. Again, underscoring offered himself. This is what he voluntarily does. Notice it's in, it's in connection with, it's in partnership with the work of the spirit, the eternal spirit. And just as a, as a good footnote, sometime when you're reading through the Gospels, maybe looking for certain themes, notice uh, the intimate relationship between the Holy Spirit and the Son, uh, inseparably so. Uh, closeness and, and His relationship to the Son. And so this is, yes, the Son giving Himself, but you can't separate the, the triune Godhead from the work, and you've got through the eternal Spirit. And then it says, without blemish. Well, chapter 4, verse 15, has told us that Jesus is without sin. Chapter 7, verse 26, the same thing. So he is morally without sin. So he's unique from the rest of the population, which is why he can offer his own blood to God. And then he says, here's what it does. Purify our conscience. That's what the blood of Christ does. Purify our conscience. Picking up that conscious idea, conscience idea, again, it's internal. It's New Covenant-ish from Jeremiah 31. It's New Covenant-ish from Hebrews chapter 8. He not only deals with the outside, external, but purifies our conscience, internal, from dead works to serve the living God. I just say, Wow. Shadows. Substance. Don't go for the shadows. That would be ridiculous. It would be ridiculous. Jesus deals with our greatest human need. Our greatest need is taken care of. That's why I started off this morning talking about difficult times and hard times. And we do really need something to, to, to be bigger than those things. Jesus takes care of our greatest human need and that is the conflict that we have between us and God in a way like the shadow system couldn't. Substance system does how much more than through the blood of Messiah? It's through Him. 
Verse 15 then says, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant. That's that long-expected Old Testament prophesied new covenant we learned about in chapter 8, Jeremiah 31. He's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first covenant. If you've ever wondered how Old Testament people could be redeemed, you can stop wondering. Because you just learned about it in that verse that I read too fast. That's a pretty amazing verse where you've got some connections going on between Old Covenant, New Covenant, New Covenant Savior connected to the Old Covenant sinners. Did you notice? Since a death, it says at the end of that verse in verse 15, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The technical word to describe the work of Christ in this sense is that it is retrospective. In the sense that we look back to the work of Christ, but it benefits us, even though he's not on earth right here and right now. They looked forward to the work of Christ, even though he wasn't on earth right then. In Hebrews 9, we learn about how they could be redeemed. From the Apostle Paul, we learn in 1 Timothy chapter 2, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That would be true of Old Testament. That would be true of New Testament. They weren't saved by works. If they were saved by works, none of them were saved. In chapter 11, we're going to learn a lot of them were saved. And they weren't saved by a system that cannot purify the conscience. The internal side of things. They had to be saved by one who would boldly go into heaven and he could take care of and purify in a sense that it would even be internal, lasting, genuine, once for all. Verse 15 is an important verse when it comes to understanding this. It's also interesting when we look at verse 15 and we learn about the new covenant because it's based upon the blood of Christ. We've been seeing the shedding of blood and death and then verse 15 talks about the new covenant. And then we hear Jesus say things like, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, like in Luke 22, 1 Corinthians 11. Think about that. When Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, Yeah, for there to be the new covenant reality, there had to be atonement for sin, even sin that would be sin committed under the old covenant. There could be no new covenant apart from death, atonement. And so Jesus, with wine, Passover wine, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. In effect saying, I'm the fulfiller, I did it. Relationship with God, secure and sure, based upon what? Me. Don't ever forget it. Until I come back, you keep drinking wine, remembering. (laughs) It's me. It's me. It's me. As often as you drink it, remember, it's me. It's me. It's me. The sacrifice never to be repeated. You're remembering it always to be repeated. Because I'm the great Savior. 
the author of the new covenant. Then verse 16 says, For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. There's a couple of different ways to take that, and I'm just going to, for the sake of the fact that we're doing a chapter at a time and we're just moving right along, I'm just going to leave it at that. And the point would be, regardless of how that's to be interpreted, the point would be the same, and that would be, there's got to be death. Some of your translations use the word covenant. The point is the same regardless. There has to be death, the death of Christ, in order to have fulfillment of this new covenant. For us to gain benefit from Christ, there has to be death involved. Then verse 18 says, Therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. And you see what the author is doing here, especially to a Jewish audience. We want the new covenant in Messiah, but we want to keep our old covenant system. Messiah, blood, and death, how could that be? And he's saying, look, old covenant, blood, it makes sense. New covenant, blood, blood of Christ. There has to be the death, or there can't actually be a genuine covenant or a genuine will. You can't actually gain benefit. Hang in there, guys. We'll keep going. Oh, you gotta, you better take a little uh, extra drink of coffee that we don't let you have in the auditorium here. Well, I'm sure the next pastor Omaha Bible Church has will have like an uprising and he'll lead the way into the promised land where we allow coffee in the auditorium. I just don't have the nerve for it. Um, why I'm saying that, I have no idea. I'm saying that because I do want you to keep listening. He's going to take us back to the Old Testament now and he's going to tell us something about how death and blood is required and necessary because where there's a covenant, where there's an official agreement together, where two parties come together, if it's a big enough issue, they're going to slay an animal as a way of making the pact. Okay? Let's keep our brains turned on. It's going to end well, I promise. Verse 19. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Verse 23 says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better, there's our theme, sacrifices than these. But nevertheless, where there was blood, shadow world, there is blood, substance world, but it's better blood. It's perfect blood, if you will, because it's the spotless Lamb of God who gives Himself. But most certainly, we have to have death. We have to have, even have death of Messiah. For there to be a new covenant, you've got to have death, or it's not a covenant. Learn that from how the old covenant was established with Moses. That's probably enough for now. Then verse 24 says, for Christ has entered not 
into holy places made with hands. That's the earthly tabernacle, which was such a big deal in the Jewish world, and rightfully so, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. How about that for better, right? And, and even think in terms of once the tabernacle goes away and you've got temple, whether it's tabernacle world or temple world, here's the Jewish mindset. Temple, 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 temple. Tabernacle, tabernacle, tab- that's harder to say. Tent, 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 right? It's, it's the mindset. It's the mindset today in modern Israel. You go there and it's all about the temple. Temple fanaticism, right? And rightfully so, if you don't have a new covenant. Unique dwelling and presence of God. But here the argument is, better because what does it say in verse 24? Jesus didn't go into the inner sanctum, if you will. What did, what did he do? But into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. How about that? Why in the world would you want to be temple, 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 temple? It's crazy. When the substance has shown up, in these last days he's spoken to us through his son, and where has he gone? Not into that temple, not into that tabernacle. He's gone into, boldly, heaven itself to be before God himself on our behalf. You'd be a fool to live in shadows. That's all. So don't do it. Don't go away from Christ. Don't go away from Jesus. It would be ludicrous and asinine and foolish and stupid and you fill in the bad words. Because he's gone into heaven itself. That's what he's saying. To appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Substitute. There are so many great themes going on in verse 24. Uh, you've got Messiah theme, you've got ascension, you have heaven, whereas Hebrews has used the word heavens, 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 and now he he pulls out the, the big gun. Heaven itself. The very place where God is. You've got Day of Atonement talk, even though he doesn't use that actual title. Representation, so impressive. And by the way, verse 24 is one of, in, in its context, in its natural habitat, verse 24 is one of my very favorite passages when it comes to assurance of salvation. I think it should be one of yours too. In its context, you want a little little activity for the afternoon? Just sit there with a, with a pen or a pencil and think about assurance in Hebrews 9. And it seems to just unpack more and more and more. I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a head start. In Hebrews 9, you see this Jesus is in heaven itself. Well, that, that, that's pretty good. <laughs> as, far, as far as me being sure that my sins are atoned for, and, and where is my priest? Where, where is my priest? Well, my, my priest is in heaven. Not bad. <laughs> that, that, that brings assurance. Jesus is in heaven itself, and, that, and now we keep going on. In context, and I just drew a lot of lines in, in the Bible I was working on, are working with. Verse 15 refers to the called. He's my mediator, my priest in heaven, 
And who is he there on behalf of? He's there on behalf of the called. Now, if he's using that at, at all, like the way the Apostle Paul does, and I think he does in Hebrews, the called in, Hebrew, and in Romans chapter 9. Or excuse me, we're in Hebrews 9, Romans 8, the called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So Jesus is in heaven. He's there as a mediator on behalf of those who, verse 15 says, are the called. Chapter 7, verse 25, so I did go outside of the chapter a little bit, says that he, you're going to love this, always lives to make intercession. That's the kind of priest he is. He doesn't die like all the other priests, like every priest that has ever lived ever has died or will die. He always lives to do what? To make intercession. It's so good. And then back to chapter 9, verse 12. How does he do this? By the means of his own blood. My assurance isn't based upon my performance and what I do or don't do. He did this by means of his own blood. He gave himself to do this. And if that's not good enough, and I think it is, our verse, or in chapter 9, verse 12, his blood secures an eternal redemption. By means of his own blood. And what did he do with his blood? He secured an eternal redemption. That's security right there. You just keep reminding me of what a sinner I am. And I'm just going to keep reading Hebrews 9. Because my assurance is ultimately based upon something outside of me. The ascended Christ. That's where it comes from. Here's what I jotted down for my own heart and soul and perhaps to share with you. Indeed, Jesus did not make redeemable, but redeemed. And what's more, his intercessory work as mediator in heaven now is most assuredly effectual. It works, in other words. If Jesus died for you, then he always lives to make intercession for you, right? And will never stop being your priest. For by the means of his own blood, he secured an eternal redemption. Time to do this again. There's a place for getting assurance based upon how you live your life. Okay, The Bible talks about that. Even in Hebrews, like in Hebrews chapter 6. But do know that the emphasis is not on, wow, look, my life is changing, I must be regenerate. There's a place for that, for sure. But the primary emphasis is there, outside of you, external, what he has done, which, by the way, then does lead to something inside of you that happens. But ultimately, my assurance comes from Christ and what he did. And it's really important that we remember that. Okay, let's, let's run to the finish line now. It ends on a great note, too. Verse 25, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. What was he doing up there? What did he do up there? Just keep making sacrifices? No. As the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own, for then he, he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. And if you're like me, you think, I don't even understand that. Well, what? that seems like a weird kind of sentence. 
And I think that's how you're supposed to think of it. He's making a point of absurdity. That's totally absurd. If you think he has to offer himself repeatedly, if Jesus has to die and die again uh, repeatedly, you know what? Here's how the logic of that works. He would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all. That's so grand. At the end of the ages, so it's not like there's going to be time to somehow do something different and have a plan B. This is the culminating high point. At the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Final, done, finished. No time for something different. This is God's climactic high point, culminating point. This is how he designed to do it. And it's in Christ once and for all work. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. Now verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once... And after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly, who are eagerly waiting for him. And please don't close your Bible yet. <laughs> I wasn't actually even looking up, so if you were, it wasn't like I was busting you. I, I do want you to just read those two verses one more time with me and, and, and maybe see them as more significant than you might have seen him before. Typically, we read verse 27 and we think, well, that's, that's the ultimate trump verse against reincarnation. Okay? And just as is appointed for a man to die once and after that comes judgment. You see? Don't believe in reincarnation. Well, I don't either and that's a good verse to go to. Good job. Okay? But, if we can allow it to be in its context, I think it's even better than that. And this is going to involve just a little bit of work, and then we're going to see it ending with this encouragement. So let's, let's re-engage our minds, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once. You see what he's doing? The parallel is, just like we die once, and then there's judgment, Christ died once. That's been the flow of the argument. Jesus only had to die one time to perfectly atone for our sins. And you know what? In a certain sense, it's kind of like us. We die once and then we face the judgment of God. So that's, that's what he's doing, at least to begin with. But then he, he sort of does a head fake, if you will. It's not a perfect parallel. Back to verse 27, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, if we're looking for an exact parallel, it's going to say something like, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of the many, will be judged. He doesn't say that. That would be the parallel, but instead he staggers us a little bit, because that's not the point. The, the reality is, yes, he was judged. Judged on our behalf so that we wouldn't have to face judgment. And then he goes down that road. Let's look at it now and keep going. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting or eagerly waiting for him. Second coming is where he shifts to. You say, where did that come from? 
second coming that is supposed to bring us hope. Remember, we started talking about bumper sticker sloganeering. And you know what? I know your life really stinks and everything's really bad circumstantially and you're being persecuted or you're suffering. But you know what? When Jesus comes back, he's going to fix everything. And you're like, yeah, thanks a lot. But it really is true. Right? And it really needs to be in our thinking. And we really do need it to be a reminder. Because at the end of the day, he is going to fix everything. And isn't it great? It's appointed for a man to die once. And then, Pat Abendroth, comes your judgment. Oh, wonderful. I'm so encouraged. That's not hope-filled. That's not good news to me. I'm not looking forward to that. But instead, it is, just as it is appointed for a man to die once and then comes judgment, Christ died once, substitutionary work, and not only that, he's going to come a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are looking for his return, those who belong to him. He comes as rescuer. I love it. I love the head fake. It's meant to catch us off guard and startle us and keep us from closing our Bibles. To bring us back to, we've got all these problems. We've got all these issues. How do we deal with it? Should we really keep even following Jesus, especially if that's the point of big conflict? Oh yeah, we should keep following Jesus because when he comes back, it's not going to be to be our judge. When he comes back, it's to be our Savior, saving us from all of our difficulties. You see, it was worth it. It was very worth it. You don't even think it's worth it. I think it's worth it for you. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Why would we go anywhere else other than to Jesus? It's worth learning about the shadows because it helps us to understand the substance. He's our hope. He's our righteousness. He is our assurance. And he'll come back one day and our messed up lives won't be messed up anymore. And so we persevere like those we'll learn about in chapter 11. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a time together like this. Thank you for just great times like this where we're able to work through what could be a pretty hard passage to work through and to be able to see the high points and to see Jesus is the high point. And we're grateful that he takes care of our sins. Uh, that he has atoned for our sins and uh, he is so much better than any other means of dealing with sin as our perfect sacrifice, our perfect atonement, our perfect righteousness. Encourage us to speak well of him, to speak clearly of him and to, to love him. In Jesus' name, amen.